Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I am so glad that you are here with me today. Last time, can't say last week because it's just been a few days. Last time we talked about Anthony Allen Shore. Today we are going to keep talking about him. And he's just a horrible excuse for a human being. There's really no other way. There's there's no other thing to say about this man. He's controlling. He's abusive. He's narcissistic. He is... horrible. What else can you say? So I'm glad you're back and let's just jump in where we left off. Just a little recap in case you kind of forgot. Remember, he's already killed Carmen Estrada. The police exhausted every avenue they could, but they had no leads to get Tony. Remember his family calls him Tony. He has divorced his wife of 10 years, taken full custody of his daughters, Amber and Tiffany, moved in with another woman and her kids, Liz, and Gina, his ex-wife, found out that their whole marriage, he'd been drugging her with rohypnol so that at night he could go out and do whatever he pleased. He is such a lovely individual, isn't he? So let's pick up where we left off. So as things started to go south with Liz, Tony had already started looking for a new relationship and a new woman to put into his life. And he had found another victim. Diana Reboyar was a sweet, studious nine-year-old girl. She was the oldest of four children and loved helping look after her two little brothers and one sister. She had aspirations of becoming a teacher herself and loved to play school and teach anyone who would participate when they were at her house. And she herself was an excellent student. She was loved by her teachers and friends. People talked about just what a sweet girl she was, kind, and also very responsible. So when Diana was three, her father was murdered in Nuevo Mexico. So her mother, Virginia, immigrated to the United States, to Houston, Texas, to make a better life for her and her children. She thought that it would be safer in Houston than it was in Mexico. So one year after her mother came to the U.S., she married a man named Jose Salazar. Together, they combined their families. Jose had a little boy of his own, and he thought of Diana and her brother as his very own children. They became a close, tight-knit family. And so Jose was the father that Diana really didn't know because her father passed away when she was so young. Diana's family lived in a nice, quiet, family-oriented neighborhood called The Heights, five minutes north of downtown Houston. In fact, it was even called the Mayberry of Houston sometimes, which for those of you who don't know, because you're too young to remember, that was a television show on TV many, many years ago when Ron Howard himself was just a boy, the director, and it was all about kind of the idyllic upbringing. So Diana lived in a very safe, close-knit neighborhood where the neighbors knew each other. There were lots of kids out playing. Families felt safe for their kids to be out and about. 
On Sunday, August 7th, 1994, at noon, Diana's aunt sent her to the store two blocks from their home to buy a bag of sugar so they could finish making their watermelon juice drinks. It was a quick walk and something that Diana did frequently. Round trip, it only took her about 10 minutes. And because she was so responsible, her mother and aunt did not worry about sending her because she would always went straight to the store and came straight home. That day, Diana had on a blue on a pair of blue flower shorts and a black Halloween t-shirt with bright orange pumpkins and a cat on the front. Her long brown hair was put up in a ponytail and then braided down the back. Now at around 12:20, Diana's mother Virginia realized that Diana was still not back from the store. This worried her because she was always very timely. She didn't dilly-dally around. She went and she came back because she didn't want her family to worry. So Virginia used the same path that Diana would have taken to the store and retraced her daughter's steps, thinking that she would spot her along the way. Maybe she was being a typical nine-year-old. Maybe she did stop. Maybe she saw some friends. Maybe she was out visiting. You know, even the most responsible child is still a child, right? But she did not see her on the way to the store. So she got to the little grocery store there in their neighborhood and went into the store. It was a small little neighborhood store and it didn't take her long to see that Diana was not there. So now, of course, Virginia is beside herself. She walked back thinking, okay, maybe I'm going to see her somewhere on the way back. But that was not the case. Diana was nowhere to be found. So by the time she got back home, she ran into her house and yelled out to her husband, Diana did not come home from the store. We need to call the police now. So her father did not waste any time and he called 911 immediately. Officer Finn Fay arrived at the Salazar's front door. He listened to Virginia's story about Diana and then he himself didn't waste any time starting the search for Diana. Now he was part of the missing persons team. And so the first thing he did was thoroughly search their home because sometimes in the case of young children who are missing, it turns out that they are hiding somewhere in the home and just think that it's a joke because they don't understand the importance of scaring your family and making them believe that you're missing. They just don't get it. They're young and they don't know. But he quickly ascertained that Diana was not hiding in the house somewhere and that she was also nowhere on their property. She was gone. So, the missing persons team then came out because Officer Finn, he called for backup. He knew that this meant that they needed to start canvassing the area. They needed to start really searching for her. So they fanned out across the neighborhood and started asking people if they had seen Diana. Now, just like with Carmen, this was a predominantly Spanish-speaking neighborhood, and the officers that came out, including Officer Finn, were all Spanish speakers because they wanted to make sure that they were able to communicate accurately with all these people. Because if you're not getting the whole story, or you don't understand part of it, you can't truly help these this family. So the people that were out all were Spanish speakers also, so they could communicate in English and in Spanish. 
So they canvassed the area and started asking if anyone had seen Diana, where they might have seen her. And they were able to confirm that Diana did make it to the store. She did buy the sugar and she did leave to go home. Now, besides the people at the store, several people in the neighborhood also saw her walk out of the store and head back in the direction of her house. They saw her cross the street and head south. But soon after that, no one could recall seeing her closer to her house. So as the missing persons detectives canvassed the neighborhood, Officer Finn requested a helicopter also to aid in the search. Diana's family put together a missing persons flyer and a local businessman offered to the use of his copy machine so that the family could get these out and distributed as quickly as possible. But by five o'clock that afternoon, Diana's parents received a terrifying phone call. It was the mother of one of Diana's classmates and a neighbor. She believed that she saw Diana in a gray car with three men near her home. The woman said that Diana looked very scared. Officer Finn and the missing persons unit canvassed Diana's neighborhood for 12 hours, but no one had any idea where Diana was or where she could have gone. Ian Beal worked 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. for Ham Security Services. He was in charge of checking on several buildings at different locations in Houston every night. Some of the buildings were easy to check. He just drove by and made sure no one was hanging around at night. Other buildings, he had to get out and walk the property with a flashlight. And then there were some that he had to drive around the property, walk the property, and then enter the actual building itself and check inside. On Monday, August 8th, 1994, at 12.15 a.m., he was making his normal route. He had arrived at an abandoned three-story office building that was his least favorite property to check. The property itself was creepy. It was very dark in the area. And of course, like I said, it was abandoned. And on one side of the office building was the very large Adith Emeth Jewish Cemetery. It was also a place where homeless people, drug addicts, and sex workers would come to hang out. So you never really kind of knew who might be there. So it was Ian's job to make sure that there weren't people just hanging around inside the building, vandalizing things or using it as a place to sleep. So he did, this was one that he did. He had to drive around the property, get out, walk the property, and then also go into the building and check the different suites. So the office building was located only two miles from the Dairy Queen where Carmen Estrada's body had been found. So this was a well-known area for Tony Shore. You know, you, you hear in true crime that serial killers like their comfort zones. They don't stray very far away. So here we are just two miles from where Tony Shore killed Carmen or dumped her body at least. As Ian Beale rounded the corner, he saw what looked like a skinny woman lying on the ground. Ian parked his truck and got out and walked over to the person on the ground. 
He stopped about three feet away and made sure that no one was still hiding somewhere. And then he radioed for help. He called 911 first, and then he called his boss. When homicide detective Bob King arrived, he was met by the officers on the scene. They told him that they thought the body was the little girl that had disappeared the day before. It was, in fact, Diana, and she was lying in the fetal position on the service driveway of the building. She was only wearing her black Halloween t-shirt. Her shorts and her underwear were missing. She had been sexually assaulted. It was obvious that she had fought hard with her attacker. Then Detective King saw the ligature. It was an olive drab nylon cord that had been tightened around her neck with a bamboo stick. The tourniquet set up around Diana's neck was almost identical to the one that had been found on Carmen a year earlier. Detective King, and I'm going to tell you guys, I've read so many different things about poor Diana, and there were so many details, but I'm not giving them to you. If you want to go and read it, go for it. But it's disturbing and it's heartbreaking that someone could do things, could do the things to a nine-year-old child that Tony Shore did. So if you want to go Google it, but I was just going to leave it out because it really, as I was reading it, made me sick to my stomach. So I just gave you the main points. Detective King went to the Salazar's home at 5 a.m. that morning to give the family the heartbreaking news about their daughter. That evening, Detective King received a call that he hoped would help him find Diana's killer. Two men had been on their way to pick up some groceries for a barbecue on the same day that Diana had gone missing. They were in Diana's neighborhood and were headed to the interstate at the same time that they think Diana had been kidnapped. So as they drove past CNF Drive-In, which was not far from the grocery store where Diana went to buy her sugar, they saw a white man stuffing a rolled up carpet into the back of a van. They said he struggled with it. And one of the men even joked to the other, that's how people get kidnapped. You know, not thinking for a minute that something was really going on. The man's vehicle was in the parking lot and it was a tan van. They drove on to pick up their groceries, but when they heard the reports about Diana, they called in immediately. Now, they were able to give a description of the tan van to the police, and then also when police showed them pictures of different types of vans, they were able to pick out a van that matched very closely to the one that they had seen. The biggest tip, though, that came in was from two little boys and a little girl. 50 minutes before Diana Riboyar was taken, the three children were riding their bikes in the driveway in front of their house. A man in a tan van, just like the one that the other men reported, drove by them and looked at the children and smiled. He then looked across the street to where a yard sale was happening. He was wearing wraparound sunglasses. He had blonde hair pulled back into a ponytail. He smiled and he kept driving. The two little boys started chasing their dog, but the little girl saw another friend right down the street and rode over on her bicycle to meet her. The little girl started riding their bikes together in the driveway. Now, the mother of the little girl was sitting on the porch talking to her niece on the telephone, and she was watching the children 
the whole time. Now, she watched as the man came back around the corner and stopped the van just past the little girls. He wasn't interested in the little boys. He wanted to talk to the little girls. He parked, got out, walked to the back of the van, opened the back door of the van, and then smiled at the little girls and said hi to them. Now, why in the world did he need to do any of that? I mean, duh. If he wasn't hoping that these girls, or at least one of the little girls, might be his next victim, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? But as soon as the mother of the little of the one first little girl got up and stepped off the porch and made herself visible, the man got in the van, well, closed the back door of the van, got in the van, and drove away. The mother said he was wearing a white shirt, tucked into blue jeans, and work boots. He was clean-shaven and slim. She was also able to give them the license plate number of the van and worked with officers to create a composite sketch. Officers circulated the sketch of the van and the man everywhere. At first, tips flooded in, and police followed each lead, but they weren't able to get any closer to finding out who kidnapped and murdered Diana. And they believed that this man in the tan van that the men on the way to the grocery store saw and the mother and the children all saw was the same person and Diana's kidnapper and killer. But unfortunately, they weren't any closer to finding out who was responsible for Diana's death. Now, less than one week after Tony Shore murdered Diana and officially broke up with Liz Martin, he moved in his new girlfriend, 18-year-old Amy Lynch. She was a senior at Pearland High School. Now, I just want you to think about that for a minute. This is a grown man who has two little girls of his own, and he decides, hey, I'm going to hook up with an 18-year-old. And not only was she 18, but she was still in high school. I mean, ew. And, and when you know what you know already about Tony Shore, it just makes it that much worse. So Shore met Amy while he was on a telephone repair call at her home. He saw her photograph on the mantle uh, at her house and asked her father about her. Now remember, everyone says Tony was charming. He was seemed very genuine and he seemed very open. He was very charismatic, so he was able to lure people in and make them feel comfortable. So in this process, you know, he saw something he liked and he aimed to get it. So he really worked up a conversation with Tony's, with Amy's father. Now, Amy's father told Tony that she loved to sing and that she was quite good. Well, of course, Tony being the musical person he was, man, this was just too good to be true. So. Tony turned on his charm and he told them all about his band and said that they should come out and see them play sometime. Well, Amy's uh, dad was, you know, charmed by Tony. So they agreed to come out to the next show and they were impressed with Tony's band because that was one thing that was true about Tony. Remember, he was actually a very gifted musician. So after the performance, Tony came over and they hung out afterwards and agreed to stay in touch. Not, I mean, very soon after this first 
true meeting, Amy was going to Tony for voice lessons. And then pretty quickly afterwards, they were involved romantically. Now, as you can imagine, Amy's parents were less than pleased about this because after all, Tony was 14 years older than Amy. Amy, though, you know, being smitten herself, older man giving her attention, she thought he just knew so much, didn't listen to her parents, and soon moved in with Tony and his daughters, Amber and Tiffany. Now, Amy truly was a talented singer, so she quickly joined the band as the lead singer, and Tony Shore believed that they were going to become famous because of this. Amy was very impressed with Tony Shore. She believed he was creative and talented, and she just was in awe of his music abilities and his knowledge about music in general. And she loved that he could build his own drum kit from scratch. He would stretch the skins over the drums and then tighten them down with a string and a little dowel rod that he would twist until the skins were tight enough across the tight of the drum. And then he would use a special knot to secure the skin to the drum. Does that sound familiar? Now, it didn't take long for Tony to begin to manipulate and control Amy just like he had Gina and then tried to do with Liz. He, again, very quickly started telling the already very slim, petite Amy that she was fat. And of course, he started using his word that he made up himself, larguous. He encouraged her to lose weight so that she would look, she would lose her curves. He wanted her to look even younger than her 18 years. So Amy slimmed down to 98 pounds. And Tony thought this was great. He started buying clothes for his girlfriend and his two daughters in the children's department. And he even bought them similar outfits that they could wear at the same time. Gross. Tony's father, Robert, noted that during this time, Tony became a control freak. And he said that Amy did everything Tony told her to do. And it disturbed him because he made Amy dress the same way that he wanted his daughters to dress. It seemed very much to Robert and his wife that he wanted Amy to be seen as a little girl. And Tony even said that when he was with Amy and both of his daughters, that he loved for other people, especially men, to look at them because he thought that they were admiring his daughters and Amy and thinking how lucky Tony was to have all these beautiful women with him. Now for him to even call them women or to want other men to look at his daughters is just gross. Tony also demanded that Amy wear her hair long and straight. Because remember, he likes long, straight, thick hair. And of course, Amy complied because she wanted Tony to be happy. One thing that Amy did question Tony about, though, was that he liked to, well, he drugged his daughters. He put Benadryl in their hot chocolate every night to make them go to sleep. Now, like I said, Amy questioned him about it, and he told Amy that that was the way he had always done things, and that he was the dad, and that they did what he said. And so Amy never questioned him again.
One year later, on January 11th, 1995, Tiffany and Amber Shore went to their school nurse and told her that their father had been molesting them. The nurse immediately reported Tony Shore to Child Protective Services. But when CPS came to the house to question the girls, they denied making the accusations. And so CPS wasn't able to do anything. Now, I don't understand this. I've shared with you before that I am a teacher. And I don't understand why CPS would come to their house to talk to the girls. Obviously, if their father is home and present, they're not going to tell on him. I mean, come on. In, I don't know, in my experience, a lot of times CPS comes to school when they are away from their parents so that they can talk to them and children might feel safe enough to report the abuse. But there's nothing. That was what happened. That was what went down. It just frustrates me. Sorry for my little rant. Dana Lizette Sanchez was born in Houston, Texas on May 11th, 1979 to Cesar and Fidelina Sanchez. She was the oldest of three children. When she was in seventh grade, she met her best friend, Diana. The two girls became inseparable. Now, Dana was a good student and was involved in ROTC. She wanted to become a doctor and her, and she told her mother that after graduation, she was going to go into the Navy so that the military would pay for her college education. Dana was described by her peers as friendly and outgoing and that she got along well with everyone. Now, Dana's parents did not approve of her boyfriend and they fought about him often. So Dana moved out of her parents' home and moved in with her best friend, Diana, and her brother. On Thursday, July 6th, 1995, Dana made plans for her boyfriend's mother to pick her up so that she could spend the evening at their house with them. But first, she had to pick up her paycheck from the mall. Now, the mall wasn't far away from where she lived with Diana and Diana's brother. So she had planned to walk to the mall, pick up her paycheck, and then her boyfriend's mom was going to pick her up from the mall. When her best friend Diana walked in that night, Dana was getting ready for the evening. She was wearing her thick, long, dark hair loose down her back. She had on white overalls, a brown and white striped bodysuit, and black low-top tennis shoes. And she was carrying a black mini backpack as a purse. Diana was a little disappointed because she had wanted her friend to go out with her for the evening. But Dana was, had already made plans with her boyfriend. And that was the last time that Diana would see her best friend. Now, there aren't many details about Dana Sanchez's last hours. She was seen at a payphone about a mile away from her apartment at 7 p.m. But she never made it to her boyfriend's house. And no one has a clue where she was in the in-between. On Friday, July 7th, 1995, Dana's mother, Vitalina Sanchez, tried everything she could think of to locate her daughter. She called all of Dana's friends and created flyers with her picture on them and distributed them everywhere. She searched for her daughter for eight days. Now, on Friday, July 14th, 1995, so it's it's so sad that, and I'm sure there would it would be like all the other cases, that uh, police probably wouldn't be able to help. But 
Dana's parents never reported her to the police, and I'm not sure why. But on Friday, July 14th, 1995, Barbara Magana, the morning assignment editor for KPRC Channel News, answered the phone at noon that day. The male voice on the other end on the other end of the phone informed her there's a serial killer out there. At the beginning of the phone call, she only half listened to what the caller was saying because it was her job to monitor the police scanner and answer calls with possible tips for stories that she could assign to the reporters to air on the evening news at six. So she was used to getting calls from people making something out of nothing or crackpots who had, you know, crazy theories. But most of the time, there was nothing to the calls that she received. So, you know, at first, she kind of took it with a grain of salt. She thought it was just one of those kind of crank phone calls. So she asked the caller, how do you know? The man responded by saying, I'm going to tell you where you can find a body. Tell me where I can find the body, Barbara Magana said. The caller began to describe a location just north of Houston near the George H.W. Bush International Airport. Barbara wrote down the directions, but did not understand where one of the streets was located. Now, the caller began to get frustrated and his irritation showed. And he said, no, listen to me. I'm going to tell you exactly where it is. He made it a point to tell her to copy down everything perfectly. Now, when Barbara heard the shift in his demeanor, she realized that this was probably not just some weirdo with a made-up story. She then gave him her full attention. The caller continued, take I-45 until you hit the Ritchie Road exit. Turn right and head up until you come upon Northview Park Drive and turn left. Go all the way to the end of Northview Park, where you will come to a dead-end sign. You will find the body lying in some tall grass, some tall weeds. Barbara McGonagher reached for her Houston key map to check the location, and the caller said, Don't use your key map. You won't find it. It's a brand new subdivision. It's not on a map yet. At this point, Barbara Magana was completely freaked out. She wondered if the caller could possibly be watching her. And she also wondered if the man on the phone was more than just someone who had found a body. You can use your chopper to find her, the caller said, referring to the Channel, News, Channel 2 News helicopter. She's lying face up, and your chopper should be able to spot her rather easily. Barbara then asked, what can you tell me about the victim? Her name is Ruby. She was born on May 11th. She is wearing several gold rings on her fingers. She is 15 years old. Barbara Magana then asked, am I talking to the killer? There was silence on the other end of the phone. She then asked again, am I talking to the killer? She then heard him take a breath, softly laugh, and then he hung up the telephone. Barbara Magana logged the call in the company book as she was supposed to do and then started trying to look up the location of the supposed body. She then picked up the phone and called the sheriff's department and told them about her phone call and the possible murder victim. At 2.35 p.m., Harris County Sheriff's Department homicide detective Bill Valerio arrived at the dead end road. Instead of immediately going to look for the body, he held back a few minutes because in his experience, people who call in tips for dead bodies will often hang around the scene 
and then try to interject themselves into the investigation. So he spent a good bit of time looking around to see if there really was anybody there that could have been involved in the phone call. But after seeing there really wasn't anyone around, he got out and was soon joined at the scene by Harris County Sheriff's Detectives Roger Wedgworth and Bill Tabor. They began their search in the field at the dead end of the road, but it was covered in thorn bushes and almost impossible to walk through. So they decided that this was not their spot. Who would leave? Even the person themselves wouldn't be able to put a body out there. So they got back into their cars and drove to the end of the wide concrete road off of Ritchie Road, and each each detective went in a separate direction, hoping to find the body that was supposedly there. So not much later, Tabor yelled, Valerio, get over here. And lying in the grass was the severely decomposed body of a human being. And there was really nothing left but the skeletal remains. When Tabor and Valerio looked closer, they could see a nylon yellow rope twisted around the corpse's neck. And at the end of the rope, there was a broken blue toothbrush handle inserted into the rope. It looked like a tourniquet. 16-year-old Dana Sanchez had gone missing eight days earlier, and her physical description matched the corpse. Now, she was still wearing the jewelry that she had left home in, and her long black hair was still attached to her skull. After talking with Houston homicide detectives, it was suggested that Dana was the third victim in three years of the same killer. All three girls were attractive, small-framed Hispanic girls with long, straight black hair. So to say Tony Shore has a type, I mean, it's pretty obvious. At nine o'clock that night, detectives Bill Valerio and Bill Tabor went to tell Dana Sanchez's parents the terrible news. The officers brought four rings with them. They asked Mrs. Sanchez to describe her daughter's rings she was wearing. The rings she described matched the ones that they had found on the body. The officers told the Sanchez's that they had found their daughter's body. Now, Mrs. Sanchez broke down and began to sob, obviously. I can't imagine getting gut-wrenching news like that. And then shared other details with officers that would help to further identify her daughter. Tuesday, September 19th, 1995, two months after Dana Sanchez's corpse had been found, a cable television lineman called the Houston Police Department. He had just finished reading an article in the Houston Chronicle about Dana Sanchez, and it triggered a memory. He was sure that he had seen a pile of clothes out in the middle of a grass field that matched the clothes that had been worn by Dana Sanchez when she went missing. So, officers went in search of them, and they were found and sent off to be tested. Now, just a few days after Dana Sanchez's body was discovered, the Houston Police Department, Harris County Sheriff's Department, and the FBI pulled together a task force to work on the murders of Carmen Estrada, Diana Riboyar, and Dana Sanchez. They believed they had a serial killer on their hands. Now, the task force did not start off smoothly. The FBI took quite a while to set up a computer system that was supposed to tie all the leads together. But instead, everything was lost in some kind of a computer glitch. And unfortunately, they didn't get any closer to finding the killer. 
Seven years later, in 2002, the local news aired a story about an ongoing investigation into the Houston Police Department crime lab. According to the Houston Police Department's own internal investigation, the problem began in the mid-1990s. Basically, the two main supervisor supervisors got into a fight, and instead of doing their jobs and supervising their employees, everything dissolved into petty squabbles, infighting, and not doing their jobs. They let it take their full attention, and things just got completely out of hand in the lab. Things were not being handled properly, and positions were not being filled. They had people doing jobs that they weren't even qualified for. Now, it had also been discovered several that there were several cases of dry labbing. And what dry labbing means, it's the act of fabricating forensic analysis. In the HPD crime lab, the dry labbing consisted of controlled substance analysts creating false documentation intended to reflect analytical procedures that had never been performed. So basically, these lab techs were saying they did their job, but they didn't. And on top of that, because they said they had done what they were supposed to do in the testing, this evidence was introduced into court. So now they were having to go back and double check the accuracy of evidence that they had used to put people in jail. It was a huge mess, obviously. And and a big scandal. And so all of this is going on while Tony's out there doing what Tony likes to do. And Houston PD is trying to clean up a huge mess, a huge shitstorm, let's be honest. Now, because of this, the Houston PD decided to place a moratorium on all DNA testing at that point because they had to work to fix their problems within, but it was going to take some time and clean it up. That also meant that people's trust in the results that the Houston Crime Lab came out with was broken. People doubted what Houston Crime Lab came out with, and that's going to play a big part in getting Tony Shore convicted. So while Houston PD started working on fixing their problems within, in 2003, the task force for Carmen, Diana, and Dana was reformed. But this time, they would be working under the cold case squad. So in February of 2003, the task force was reformed in Harris, in the Harris County Homicide Office, but under the Cold Case Division. Detective Bob King, Detective Harry Fakaris, Detective Roger Wedgworth, and Detective John Swain were in charge. And they pulled out all three cases and reworked all the leads on all the cases started from scratch like they were all brand new. Now, one of the detectives had a favorite suspect and he wanted to really focus on this guy. So 
Detective King said, we've got a great DNA lab called Orchid Cell Mark out of Dallas. Remember, the Houston Crime Lab has been compromised. No one trusts anything happening in there right now. And they put a stop to all DNA testing until they got their mess cleared up. So if anything was going to be tested, it had to be sent somewhere outside of Houston PD. Because it had to, because there was no trust left right now with the public or really even the police department that what the crime lab was doing would be accurate. So they had to send it away. So Detective King said, we have an analyst there that we work with all the time. Her name is Catherine Long, and she's phenomenal. We send her evidence, and she, fi she finds whatever we're looking for. So they said, well, we don't have any DNA on Dana Sanchez because her body was so decomposed. But all the detectives wanted the DNA from Carmen Estrada and Diana Repigar to be sent off to Orchid Cell Mark there in Dallas. And Detective King said, if there's DNA to be found, they'll find it. So he convinced the others that that's what they needed to do. So then in turn, though, they had to convince their higher ups to pay for it. So they went to Captain Holland and Lieutenant Greg Neely and told them that that's what they wanted to do. It was a lot of evidence, but luckily... It had all been saved and kept up with for all these years. You know, I mean, this is, we're going on 10 years now. So it had all been preserved. It had all been saved. So it was a lot. But Captain Holland agreed that this was something they need to do. So he agreed he was going to work on getting the funding. But this was a months-long process. So it wasn't short. And they didn't get the approval and the money for it until early September. So in early September, they sent all of the DNA evidence off to be tested by Catherine Long at Orchid Cellmark. Now, Orchid Cellmark is not some little rinky-dink organization. If you get on its website, it says it's one of the oldest and most experienced providers of forensic DNA identity testing in the country. And it has provided services by police departments, not just in our country, but worldwide. But they have done testing for high profile cases like the OJ Simpson case, John Benet Ramsey, and the Green River Killer. So these are people who know what they're doing, they're not messing around. Now, one of the things that they most wanted tested, especially Detective Bob King, because he worked on this, he submitted the samples that he had been saving at this point for 10 years of Carmen Estrada's fingernail clippings. Remember, every year he made sure that they were preserved correctly. So Catherine Long got those first, and it didn't take her long before she discovered a hit. The supervisor in charge of CODIS, that's the Combined DNA Index System, at the Texas Department of Public Safety, was able to check for a comparison. And guess what? They got a hit. And that's where we're going to stop for today. I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger, so to speak, but there's so much more to go over. 
you guys. I mean, and I don't want to rush it. It's a lot of details and a lot left. And I'd rather take our time so that it's not rushed and confusing. Thank you for listening today. I am so happy that you were here with me and I will see you next week. Please remember that if you enjoy the podcast, leave a five-star review and tell a friend and also subscribe. That way, every time there's a new episode, it automatically shows up for you and it's ready to go. Also, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, and I will see you next week. Bye.